You know, perhaps more than anyone else, Christians have a reason to be hopeful. And it's not because we're hopeful in any one person or any political party or anything like that. Our hope has a name, and it's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And because he died, because he was buried, because he rose from the grave, we have great hope. So whether you're part of our church family or you're joining us for the very first time, we're glad you're here and hope and pray you will sense from the preaching of the word the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. I believe in the sun. I believe in the risen one. I believe I overcome by the power of his blood. Amen. Amen. I'm alive. I'm alive because he
that you did not leave us in darkness, but you called us by name and called us out of the grave. You didn't have to do that, but you did because you're good. You are a caring, loving God, and we are so, so thankful for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In 1971, former Beatles star John Lennon sang a song where he imagined a world of perfect peace and unity. No more wars, because there was no heaven, no hell, and no religion. So that everyone could just focus on living for today. He thought that was the answer. And that song went to number one and stayed on the charts for almost a year. But 2,700 years before John Lennon ever imagined a world without religion, the prophet Isaiah predicted the arrival of a savior. Something much better than religion or atheism. The arrival of a savior who would take on flesh. And step into our world to do for us and be for us what we could never do or be for ourselves. So turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, where I want to show you something far better than the absence of anything from our world. 
I want to show you the presence of Almighty God in our world through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9. You follow along as I begin reading in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Skip to verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet Isaiah predicted the first arrival of our Savior. Who arrived in a manger. Took on flesh and arrived in a humble manger. But this same prophet predicts the second coming of our Savior, who will not arrive quietly in a manger, but will burst into our world as King of kings and Lord of lords. Jump over to chapter 40. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Chapter 40, beginning in verse 4. Isaiah 40, verse 4. Every valley shall be exalted. And every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. And the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Nothing reveals the glory of God like the Son of God in all of his fullness. And all flesh shall see it together. Oh, at the first arrival of our Savior, only a handful of shepherds and some wise men celebrated the arrival. But at his second coming, every eye will see it and every knee will bow and call him Lord. But right now, right now we're living between his first arrival and his second coming. In a real sense, we're living right now in between the already and the not yet. He's already come. He's already solved our biggest problem. He's already stepped into our world. He's already made incredible promises. He's already given us his spirit. But he's not yet fully consummated, fulfilled, done everything that he's promised to do. And so in many ways, we groan together. Romans chapter 8 tells us all of creation right now is groaning. And we, created in his own image, groan. Which can be awkward and painful and confusing at times. Even to the point that Christians can be tempted to just give up altogether. It's too dark. It's too broken. It's too messy. And start to wonder what are we supposed to be doing right now? What are we supposed to be doing in this in-between already and not yet? That's what I want to do today. I want to bring back into focus for us the main thing that he's called us to do. And I want to revisit the foundational truths of our faith that Jesus Christ right now is Lord And king, that Jesus Christ right now is with us. He has not abandoned us. And that Jesus Christ right now is at work in his world using his people to accomplish his glorious purposes and to spread his glorious message of hope that is rooted in. The resurrection, his death and resurrection. And that's what brings us back to the book of Acts. Before the coronavirus hit, we were going through the book of Acts together as a church family. So we're going to pick it up 
We're going to jump back into the book of Acts to answer this question. What should we be doing? What does God want us to do? What's he called us to do? So turn with me in your Bibles to Acts. Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 30 because I just want to grab the last verse of chapter 22 to get some context as we head into chapter 23. Acts chapter 22 beginning in verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews. Let me help you here. What's just happened in chapter 22 is that Paul was trying to give his own personal testimony again and tell what God has done in his life because of Jesus Christ. And it created such an uproar there in Jerusalem that he had to be pulled out of the crowd by a Roman commander because they were not in favor of chaos to figure out what is going on. Why is the crowd so upset? And so this Roman commander is trying to figure out who is this Paul and what is this message and why did it upset people so much? Acts 22 verse 30. The next day, because the Roman commander wanted to know for certain why Paul was accused by the Jews, he released him from his bonds and commanded that the chief priests and all their council appear. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? And those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, oh, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. We don't know why Paul said that. A lot of speculation. There's a sense that perhaps this meeting was thrown together so quickly, the high priest didn't have all his royal garb on, so Paul didn't know. It's possible that Paul can't see that well because some think that's what he's talking about in the book of Galatians, about his eyes. We don't know. But he says, oh, I didn't know. That he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And it is concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead that I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and no angel or spirit. These two groups were the leading religious groups of the day, but the Sadducees were very political. All they carried about was political power and position. They would be your religious liberals today. They actually did not believe in lots of what the Bible teaches. No spirits, no angels, no heaven, no hell, no resurrection. But they're religious leaders. The Pharisees actually really did believe the Bible. So knew there is a resurrection. There are angels. There are spirits. Now, don't make a mistake. They're not fighting because the Pharisees believe that Jesus rose from the dead and the Sadducees don't. Neither group believes Jesus rose from the dead. It's just the Pharisees do go by the Bible and know that there is a resurrection. They believe in resurrection. So these two groups go at it. Verse 8, for the Sadducees say there's no resurrection, no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. Then there arose a loud outcry, and the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Now, when there arose a great dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by the crowd, commanded that soldiers should go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. But the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem... So you must also bear witness in Rome. So, how? How does God want his people to proclaim his glorious message in this world? Number one, 
Number one, don't get lost in debate without highlighting the heart of our hope. Don't get lost in debate without highlighting the heart of our hope. Oh, the opponents of Paul, the opponents of Paul were unhappy about so many of the finer points of Christianity because it exposed the utter futility of their religious traditions and religious works that they clung to so tenaciously. But Paul refused to get, he refused to get lost in a debate on anything less than Jesus and the hope of the resurrection because that is the very heart and soul of Christianity. Listen to me. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the only God-man, fully God, fully man, and the miracle of the resurrection are what set Christianity apart from every other religion. No other religion has a God who comes down to us, who takes on flesh. No other religion has a God in flesh. And no other religion has a resurrection. And so Paul understood that if he was going to be on trial for anything, if he was going to give an explanation for anything, then let it be about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look at what he does in verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. And concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. What is he doing? He's bringing it back to the main thing. The main thing. That there is life after death because Jesus conquered death when he rose from the grave. That's what all of Christianity and the hope of the gospel hangs on. Rest on is based upon. And so that's why you're going to see as Paul, for the rest of our book, as Paul gets shuffled around from authority to authority and stands on trial over and over and over. He's going to go before Felix and Festus and a king and a queen. And he's going to go all the way to Rome because he appeals to Caesar. The rest of this book, as he gets shuffled around from authority to authority and stands on trial multiple times you will see that Paul brings it back to Jesus and the resurrection. Jesus and the resurrection. Let me ask you. Let me ask you. You say you're a Christian. What about you? When you're trying to engage people with the hope of the gospel, the good news, what do you spend most of your time debating and arguing about? Bring it back to Jesus. Bring it back to Jesus. I've said this before. But oh, it's so clarifying. It can be so clarifying. And so much less confusing when you think, I, I don't know, I don't know. Before COVID shut everything down, I was on a flight home from Jacksonville and I was seated next to a young man. And so we struck up a conversation. We talked about the NFL, the Bengals, all kinds of other things. And when there was a pause, I asked him a question that I hoped might turn it in a spiritual direction. I looked at him and said, so, did you grow up going to church at all? And we were off to the races. Off to the races as I learned that he was an Air Force pilot. His wife was finishing up her PhD in clinical psychology. And they had both been raised in church, taken to church, but had walked away from it in high school and college. And as I asked more questions, he was happy to talk about it. He said, quote, he said, hey, we're spiritual, but we're just not associated with any particular faith. In fact, he said, as a couple, we actually pray together every day, just not to any person. We just pray to the universe in general. And then he said how they'd been turned off when they were growing up by the teaching about hell that they heard and the way it was taught in their church. And then, of course, he said what I hear so often when I try to engage people today. How could millions of people be wrong in other religions like Buddhism and Islam? How can millions of other people in other religions be wrong? So, 
what do you think I did next? I did what I've told you before. I moved it back to Jesus. I moved it back to the person and work of Jesus. And we stayed there for the rest of the conversation. Not because the question of other religions and hell doesn't matter. But because when you begin to understand who Jesus is and what he's done, those other questions begin to fall into place. So I moved it back to Jesus by simply asking, hey, who do you think Jesus was? And I told him, really, that's the most important question. Not what holy book's the right holy book. Not what about other religions. Not what about, what about, what about so many issues. Who was Jesus? I said, that's the most important question you could wrestle with. And so he looked at me and said, ah, I believe Jesus lived. But I believe he was a good teacher and not God. Now, when he said that, I did what I've often also done. And I got this from C.S. Lewis. I used C.S. Lewis's argument and I said, "Ooh, you know what? Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic or Lord. But you cannot say he was a good person or a good teacher because good people do not go around claiming to be God. He claimed to be God. Either he is and it's true and so he's Lord or he isn't and he knew it and he's trying to deceive people. So he's a shyster. We've got enough of that in our world. Or he really thought he was, but he's not and he's a lunatic. I don't want to follow that either. But you can't take this middle ground. Oh, he was a good man. He's just not God. He claimed to be God. And then I encouraged him. I said, and as you make your decision about who Jesus is, don't just read other books. You realize more books have been written about Jesus than anyone in the world. The Library of Congress proves that. Don't start with all the other books. Start with the record that the eyewitnesses have left us in the Bible. I said, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Even if you don't believe the Bible, you say, I don't believe it's inspired. Doesn't matter. The inspiration of God's word doesn't shut off just because someone reading it doesn't believe. God's word is powerful. I said, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as you wrestle with, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What did he do? What did he say? And all my conversations don't always end this way, but this one did. I was so encouraged. As we wrapped up our conversation and the plane was landing, he looked at me and said, I don't believe it was an accident that we were seated next to each other. I said, I don't either. I don't either. But now you think with me for a minute how this conversation could have gone, right? I moved it back to Jesus and we stayed there. We had a 60 to 90 minute conversation about the most unique, life-changing person in the world, Jesus Christ. But we could have jumped in. I could have jumped in and began to debate about hell and debate about the merits of other religions. I moved it back to Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Ask people, who do you think Jesus was? That's the most important question that you could wrestle with. And you'll see in the book of Acts, that's what Paul did. And that's what other believers did all through the book of Acts. And it's what we should be doing today. Talk about Jesus. But now get this. Despite the wonder of Jesus and the hope of our glorious message. Point number two. Don't. Be surprised when people react to our message of hope. Yeah, they did then and they still do today sometimes. So, yes, we have a glorious message of hope. But you got to understand that message of hope flies in the face of the I can do it myself because I'm not that bad of a person. Default setting that we're all born with. People by nature do not like to go down the path of thinking of themselves as a sinner. And this glorious message is hinged on you couldn't save yourself. You need a savior. You need deliverance because you're a sinner. That flies in the face of our default setting. Human beings do not like to go down that path much at all. And so you need to realize their hope is education and science and technology. Oh, I've had people in conversations also say, oh, I think, I think people are getting better and better and better. 
through education and science and technology. Now, you look around our world, all over the world. Do you see people getting better and better and better? I see more and more evidence that we need a savior and we need a glorious message of hope. And we need to be delivered from someone outside of us because we are not going to fix this or save ourselves. But people do not want to hear that. And so don't be surprised when sometimes people react to this glorious message of hope. That's what happened to Paul when he brought it back to Jesus. Look at verse 9. Then there arose a loud outcry. Look at verse 10. Now when there arose a great dissension. That word great is the Greek word mega. This was a mega argument. That word outcry in the Greek is a word for shouting out in the midst of a controversy. This is not a polite little discussion. Shouting out in the midst of controversy. And the word dissension is actually a Greek word for uproar or riot. In fact, verse 11 tells us that the meeting got so out of control, the commander had to pull Paul out of it again. This is the second time, back in chapter 22 in Jerusalem, same thing happened. This is the second time he's had to shut down a meeting because it just became so chaotic. He had to pull him out. He thought he was going to be pulled apart by the crowd. Now, It is worth noting, the reaction is not all just Paul proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. Some of it is the dispute between the Pharisees and Sadducees over whether a resurrection even exists. See, what you got to realize is these two groups actually hate each other. But they have tried to come together in opposition against Christianity because they actually hate Christianity more. They both see it as a threat to their system. So they're, they're together in opposition of Christianity. But oh my goodness, they don't agree on much of anything else. And this is one of their big controversies as well. So chaos ensues. And here's what I want you to think about and get a hold of today. In the midst of any controversy or confusion, one of the best things you can do for yourself and that I can do for myself as a Christian is to clarify what has God called us to do and to be focused on. What's God called us to do? And that's my third point today. Don't get confused about what God has called us to do. What is that? He has called us to be witnesses of our Savior and to be witnesses of the fact That God has done something about all this sin and mess and pain and hurt. So often people say, does God care? Is God going to do anything about this? God has done something about it. And God is going to yet do even more about it. Oh yes, God cares. And God has called us to be witnesses of the fact. That there is hope. There is a solution. There is a savior. Now think about it. Paul could have been very discouraged as he sat in that jail that night. Thinking about how, when he proclaimed the message of the resurrection, shouted it out. Instead of igniting a revival, it incited a riot that shut the whole meeting down. And you need to realize, this was an incredible opportunity. You know how sometimes we think, oh my goodness, what an opportunity that would be. Paul was given this opportunity to speak before his former peers. That's why he begins his speech, men and brethren. You would not have said that to the Sanhedrin. This is the highest religious council in the day. This would be the equivalent of the religious Supreme Court. It was a 71-member council that was the highest religious council. And he used to be a part of this group. This was his former peer group. This would be like you having a chance to witness And tell what Jesus has done in your life to all your co-workers or to your former neighborhood neighbors. You were lost, but let me tell you what God has done in my life now. This was the opportunity Paul had. So he had to perhaps be licking his wounds and rethinking. Don't we do that sometimes? Oh, if I just started differently. Oh, what if I hadn't reacted to the smack in the face? What if I hadn't said you whitewashed wall and I didn't know it was the high priest? What if, what if, what if that meeting might have gone differently? So Paul is likely discouraged. He's, he has shut down 
Two times when he tried to talk about the glorious message, it's just ended in an uproar. And you'd have this sense, what a waste. We tend to think, did anyone come to faith in Christ? If not, total loss. And so right here, it's so encouraging that Jesus comes to him. Jesus himself comes to Paul to remind him that that meeting was not an epic fail. It's not an epic fail if you remember what he's called us to do. And that's what Jesus clarifies for Paul at that low point. Look at it in verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. I hope you heard it. That one verse, that one verse brings back into focus what he's called us to do. Two times. Testify, bear witness. Test. It's two different English translations of the same Greek word. It's actually the same Greek word both times. Martureo, where we get our word martyr, witness. You testified for me in Jerusalem. You don't have any sense that anyone believed or put their faith in Christ. That's okay. You testified. And you are going yet to bear witness for me in Rome. He's clarifying his calling on our lives to testify, to be witnesses. That's all he's called us to do, to testify and bear witness. You think about it in a courtroom. When you testify, it's not your job to convince anybody There's a prosecuting attorney, a defense attorney that hopes to take it all and convince the jury. When you testify, you just tell your story. You just tell what you saw. You tell what you know. You tell what you've experienced. Just tell. Testify about Jesus and the hope of the gospel and how he's changed your life. It's not our job to put anyone in a headlock, to twist arms And to feel like unless someone prays the prayer and puts their trust and faith in Jesus right on the spot, I failed. No. It's God's job to change hearts. It's God's job. He's the Lord of the harvest and he is drawing people to himself from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. It's our job to testify, to witness, to speak the name of Jesus, to share this glorious hope, the message of The gospel. You realize what Jesus is doing right here? When he says to testify for me. To bear witness for me. He's actually restating the original commission. That he gave to his first disciples. About what they should be focused on. He's restating and clarifying why. I'll tell you why. Oh my goodness. Because in the midst of the noise of our world, you can get off track and confused about what he's called us to do. You remember his original commission? Jump back to it. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. 22 chapters ago, we started with it. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you, Jesus speaking to his first followers, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The commission doesn't change regardless of where you are, regardless if you cross cultural boundaries, regardless of distant, whether it's at home, further away from home, across the world. He says, be my witnesses. That's our commission, and our calling. I want you to notice how there are three pronouns in that one verse. You, you, you. God doesn't have another plan. Education and science and technology have not brought us to a point that surely there's another way that God's going to get this done. Nope. You and me. And since the word, the verse, verse 8 begins with the conjunction, but... Right? That's turning something in a new direction. Then it's fair to ask, what was just happening? Why did Jesus feel the need to redirect and alter? I'll tell you why. Because he was correcting something right here early on. 
What were the disciples asking and wanting? That's what prompted Jesus to adjust their focus this way and say, but you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Well, they were asking and wanting the same thing that we so often want today. They wanted to know, when are you going to make all things right? When are you going to fulfill all your promises? When are you, we going to see your kingdom in its fullness? When are you going to be the king and you're going to reign and we'll be with you? Jesus, when, when, when are you going to do that? And he basically tells them in verse 7, none of your business. None of your business. See, in verse 6, they say, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They were ruled by Rome. They hated it. Are you going to do it now? Are you going to make things the way we want now? And so in verse 7, he says, basically, it's not your business to know when. He's saying, stop trying to set dates. Oh, we're so guilty of that, aren't we? Books are still written. People go crazy over prophecies trying to figure out everything that, everything that Revelation is talking about so we can know when. We can know when. We can know when. Hey, if God wanted us to know when, he would have made it a lot more clear than what we have in Revelation. Because when is not the most important question, nor is it our business. When is his business? What is our business? What should we be doing until he comes again? And that's what Acts 1.8 is. But you, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. Speak the name of Jesus. Talk about the good news of the gospel. This glorious hope that we have. That one verse... Acts 1.8, that one verse brings back into focus the calling we've been given and the power to get it done. The calling we've been given, be my witnesses, and the power to get it done. Because I've given you my spirit. And the Holy Spirit loves to talk about Jesus. Loves to talk about Jesus. Loves to share the good news of the gospel. Listen to me. After 23 chapters of Acts now... Oh, yeah, you can see that Acts is an action-packed book. That's why it's named Acts. There's things happening. Woo! But don't get confused here. Oh, if you look at the book of Acts and you look at it carefully, 30% of the text of the 28 chapters in the book of Acts, 30% is taken up with Christians explaining to another person the good news of the gospel. Who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Who, it's not just action. It's telling, witnessing, testifying who Jesus is. Whether it's in a marketplace or on a deserted desert road. Or in a prison or in a courtroom or in a gathering in a home. The book of Acts is filled with Christians explaining the gospel to other people or being witnesses that Jesus came, lived, died, rose again, and is coming back. So let me just stop. Let me just stop and break it down and tell you, what is the gospel? Because this is what we're supposed to be as often as possible. As often as possible and as clearly as possible, we're supposed to Tell the good news of the gospel. So let me break it down for you. Gospel is simply a word that's shorthand. I don't want you to think of it as insider language. It's just shorthand for this. All of us, every single human being, regardless of where you're born, are sinners by nature and by choice. We are born sinners. You don't have to become a sinner. You're born a sinner. And then you prove it rather quickly. You begin to choose sin. People choose different sins, but we are sinners by nature and by choice. God gave us his law, the Ten Commandments. Not so that it would save us, not so that you could say, oh, let me see if I can keep all those commandments so that God will accept me into heaven. No, he gave us the Ten Commandments so that you would have a standard to realize I fall short. 
I fall short because we tend to think, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. I'm not that bad. Look at them. I'm better than them. If you look at the law, the Ten Commandments, we all fall short so that we would all see our need for a Savior. And so God himself sent his son into our world who took on flesh and is the only one who ever perfectly kept all of God's law, pleased God perfectly, and then died. His death was no accident. His death on the cross was not something getting out of control or out of hand. He came for the very purpose of dying as a sin substitute so that when he died on the cross, it was in payment for our sin and none of his own. Because he had no sin of his own. And in that moment on the cross, our holy God poured out his wrath against sin on his son instead of us. So that we could be forgiven. So that we could be clean. So that we could be in a right relationship with God. And then Jesus did not stay dead, but rose from the dead three days later, proving to be the son of God who could forgive sins, who could change lives, who could change our world so that now this free offer of the gospel goes out that anyone who will believe, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that he is who the scriptures say he is, that he did what the scriptures testify he did, can be forgiven, can be changed You put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and you surrender your life to him. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, But he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. What he did was for us. It was for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Of God in him. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. That verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, shows the great exchange. There's a great exchange. He gets our sin. We get his righteousness. We get the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ as if it's ours. So that when you put your trust in Jesus, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your mess. He sees the righteousness of his son. Oh, Hallelujah. That's why this is called good news. That's why this is the most glorious message of hope that our world could ever hear. And so take heart. We're not responsible for the results. We are to be witnesses of Jesus and the good news that God has done something about this broken dark world and is yet going to do more. And you say, why does he delay, Brad? Why are we living in the in-between of the already and the not yet? Come on. Here's why. Because our God, despite our sin, is so merciful and so long-suffering. He delays his return so that more may come to faith in Christ it's not, his, it's not his desire that any should perish, but that all should come. He delays so that more can come. But how do they hear the good news? Through God's people. God's spirit uses God's people to proclaim this good news. There's a savior. There's a solution. There's hope. Oh, he's called us to be witnesses of Jesus and this hope. But let me show you something else God knew. Something else God knew Paul needed and we so often need in this world. Number four, don't think that he's left you to do it alone. Don't think that he's left you to do it alone. Look at verse 11 again, because there's still some more good that we can dig out of that one verse. Because Jesus doesn't just refocus us on our calling. He refutes one of the biggest lies that we're guilty of believing. What is that? He's not with me. He's left me. I feel abandoned. I don't feel like God's helping me. The situation's too hard. If God was with me, it wouldn't be this hard. He'd get me out of this. He'd get me out of this. He'd get me out of this. One of the biggest lies that we can be guilty of believing. 
is that he's not with me. Look at verse 11 again. But the following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, be of good cheer, Paul. Oh, my goodness. Look at that phrase. The Lord stood by Paul. Oh, how Paul must have needed that. Because we don't just get confused about our calling. We get disheartened about where God is in the midst of this mess. Where are you, God? Are you with me? Are you with me? Are you with me or not? So verse 11 reminds us, Jesus had never lost sight of Paul. Never. Even though he was sitting in a jail, he knew exactly where Paul was and wanted Paul to know, I am standing by you. Doesn't look like things are going great. Doesn't like, look like you're getting a great response. Doesn't look like you're successful in what I've called you to do. You're not alone. I'm standing by you. Many of you have probably read Pilgrim's Progress. Second best-selling book in the entire world. Second most translated book in the entire world after the Bible. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, was in prison for 12 years. Years, a Bedford prison for 12 years because he refused to say he wouldn't preach the gospel. And his heart was pained that he was separated from his wife and his blind daughter. If you read any of his writings, you'll see the greatest pain on his heart was being separated from his blind daughter. It broke his heart. But he would not compromise and say that he would not preach the gospel. So he spent 12 years in a prison. And at one point, A believer sought him out, found him and said, oh, John, the Lord sent me to you. And I've looked all over half of the prisons in England to find you. And when he said that, John Bunyan said to his new friend, oh, my friend, I don't think the Lord sent you. Because if he had, you would have come here first because God knows where I've been. All these years. Listen to me. God knows where you are today. God knows right where you are today. And he's with you. You're not alone. Despite the circumstances being hard. You think about John Bunyan. I don't know what God is doing in your life. But I do know this. He will leave us in hard places to accomplish purposes that sometimes we'll never know until eternity. Sometimes we do get to know. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress during that imprisonment. Hey, if he'd been a free man, he probably wouldn't have had the time. He's got a family. He's a pastor. There's a church. There's needs. He's in a prison and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress that now God has used all over the world. In more than a hundred different languages and translations. But John Bunyan probably didn't know that. He desperately wanted out of those hard circumstances. God knows right where you are today. I don't know what he's doing. And I don't pretend to try to tell you what he's doing. But I do know he's up to something. He's good. He's wise. He's loving. And he's with you. So let's ask this question. Let's be honest. Why is it that we're so tempted to believe, I don't think he's with me. I don't think he's with me. I'll tell you why. We so often equate deliverance with assurance that God is with us and for us. We think if he was with me and for me, he'd get me out of this. This is hard. This is not good. A good God would change this. Oh, listen. So often, more than we like, God chooses to stand by you in it rather than deliver you out of it. But he's good. He's wise. He's loving. And he's up to something. He has purposes. Nothing's random in this world. So the Lord stood by Paul in that dark, dank cell when he might have been at one of his lowest points. And that word Lord is a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't just stand by Paul. Oh, it gets even better. He spoke to Paul because he knew what was coming 
next. You say, what was coming next, Brad? I'll tell you. Paul, from this point on till his death, will never be a free man again. He will spend the remainder of his life in captivity of some form, being shuffled from one prison to the next, being taken from one trial to the next. But in that, God would sovereignly have Paul testify of Jesus and the gospel in front of some of the highest authorities in the land. But he would never be free again. There would never be another dramatic deliverance or release from prison, right? We've already seen that in the book of Acts. We love it. It's so cool when there's a miraculous deliverance where an angel comes and opens the jail cell and leads the Christian out into the streets so that they can go to the prayer meeting and surprise everybody and say, here I am, you've been praying for my release and here I am. We love it when it ends that way. And God can do that. He's not gonna do that for Paul. There will be no dramatic deliverance. And guess what? There may be no dramatic deliverance for you, but don't begin to doubt whether he's with you and for you, and at work in you, and through you. He doesn't just stand by Paul. He speaks to Paul. Look at verse 11 again. What what does Jesus say to Paul? Be of good cheer. If that falls flat on you, I know, in in the English, it just kind of sounds like you're lifting your glass and say, hey, buck up. Hey, it's not that bad. Not a great English translation. The NIV, the ESV, the New American Standard get it much more, get it better. They say, be courageous or take heart. Take heart. Be courageous. Because it's the Greek word tharseo that means to be courageous or to be marked by confidence and assurance. You're marked by confidence. Oh, be confident. Have assurance that I'm with you. Be courageous. And it's only used five times in the entire New Testament. This verb is only used five times in the entire New Testament. Guess who says it every time? Jesus. And guess who he's speaking to every time? People like us who are anxious and fearful about their circumstances. He says it to the bedridden paralytic who is lowered down before him on a cot. He says it to the woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 years. And it says she's gone. She spent all of her money going from doctor to doctor to doctor. And she's only gotten worse. He says it to the terrified disciples who are caught in a pitch black storm at 3 a.m. on the Sea of Galilee. These are seasoned sailors, but this storm is so intense, they think they're going to die. And he says it to his disciples on the night of his crucifixion. Take heart. Be courageous. Have assurance that I am with you. No matter how noisy, no matter how confusing things get, No matter how hard things get, no matter how much you begin to question, wouldn't he deliver me from this? Wouldn't? Take heart. Be courageous. Have assurance. I'm with you. Oh, we've seen it over and over and over in the book of Acts. How God's spirit uses God's people to proclaim his glorious message of hope. Oh my goodness, listen, in the midst of the noise and confusion today, let's be people who keep looking for opportunities to speak the name of Jesus and to tell the glorious message of the gospel because that is the only hope for our world. Oh God, thank you, thank you that you have already burst into our world once, took on flesh, stepped into our world. And you've not abandoned us now. You've given us your spirit. Each one of us has your spirit, no matter where we are. And we have your promises that you are not done. You're coming again. You're gonna make all things right. 
And oh, as we live, as we live in the middle of the already and the not yet, oh God, use us as your people. Use us to speak the name of Jesus and declare this life-changing message of hope for your glory. Use us and for the great good of our world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
remember that it is because our debt is paid that we can have hope. Go this week rejoicing.